Well, good morning again. If you're joining us online, thanks for doing that. So before I was a pastor, I worked with a campus ministry called Crew or Campus Crusade. And um, we had an illusionist named Andre Cole, and he would come in and he would do illusions. And he said, let me be very clear, this is not magic. This is a trick of the eye. And it was a, a form of outreach to and he would share the gospel from that. But I remember sitting in the audience saying, I'm going to walk on the water. I'm going to cut this guy in two, and I'm going to put him back together. And, and I just thought, yeah, I don't think you can. It may be an illusion, but I don't think you can do that. Illusion or not, he, he pulled it off. Well, I share that to say, you know, we have been in the book of Revelation a while, and we have seen God acting uh, through a series of judgments to call people to himself. And, and yet, what we're finding out is people have not repented. They have not turned back to God. And, and it could make us wonder, what's it going to take for independent humanity to worship God, to give him his due? And that's what I want to talk about this morning. So if you've got a Bible, if you open it to Revelation chapter 11, we're going to go through this chapter and wrestle with this question, what will bring, what will bring independent humanity to worship God. Now, if you've been with us, let me just talk us, haven't been with us, let me talk us through what is going on in Revelation. A chapter one, God gives John an apocalypse, it's a vision. And he's going to communicate through symbols. Think about a political car- commentator who uses a political cartoon. The symbols are for a purpose to communicate a message. But this message is not one for us to kind of speculate and kind of crack the code. This is a prophetic word. We understand prophecy is instruction how to live. It says that in chapter 1, verse 3. And I just finished this week, the last sermon in Revelation. Uh, Prophecy is mentioned four times. This is a prophetic word for seven churches who are being persecuted in the Roman Empire. About 95 AD, Domitian is the emperor. And he has demanded to be worshipped as God. The Romans believe the gods mediate their blessings to the emperor. Additionally, uh, each guild has a patron god. And if you're going to be successful, you need to, to worship that god. And they're being persecuted for not doing it. And John is saying through this vision, I want you to stay firm. God will vindicate the righteous and he will judge the unrighteous. And then we find out that this prophetic word comes in the form of a letter to seven churches. In chapters 1 through 3, are a message to each of those seven churches. And, he, and Jesus holds out himself, says, I'm sufficient. And then he assesses them. Here's what you're doing well. Here's what needs to change. Some of the, the uh, appraisals are good. Some are not so good. Chapters 4 and 5 then take us into heaven in the vision. And John sees things are in order, but then there's a, things are not in order on earth. So there's a scroll written on both sides. And it's, it's God's plan of, of vindication of the righteous and judgment of the unrighteous to bring heaven to earth. But it's sealed with seven seals and no one has the authority to open it. John begins to cry. But then he hears about the line of Judah and the root of David. Very, very militaristic terms. And so he's expecting a conqueror. But then he looks and what he sees is a slain lamb. And the picture is, through this slain lamb, God will conquer his enemies. And so Jesus is fit to open the seals. And so we have a series of three sets of seven divine judgments. And the first ones are the seal judgments. And there's, the sixth seal brings us right to the end. And you're going to think it's over the end, but no, it introduces the, the seven trumpet judgments. And we have looked at six of those, and we're going to look at the seventh one today. And we're in a bit of an interlude, and we'll get to that seventh one. Later in chapters 12 through 14, we'll get a picture of what is going on in in the heavens. 
16 through 18, we'll talk about the last series of seven judgments, the bulls, and then 17 through 21, we'll show God deconstructing his opposition and bringing his empire in. So here we are. After the sixth trumpet judgment, waiting for the seventh, we're in chapter 11, and it starts this way. There was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Now let me stop there. If ever... There's a chapter in the book of Revelation that is controversial. This is it. How do you interpret two what I'm going to call metaphors? The first is the temple in verses 1 and 2. And the second is the two witnesses we will find in verses 3 through 13. How do we look at those? Do we look at those literally? Or do we see them metaphorically? A lot of that turns on what do you understand about apocalyptic literature? Do you feel the need to interpret everything literalistically in the Bible? Some will look at this and say, ah, in the end time there's going to be a reconstruction of the temple. I disagree. I think the temple is a metaphor for the church. The book of Hebrews has said we're doing away with the temple because Jesus is the final sacrifice. John in Revelation 21 says specifically there is no temple. In the writings in the New Testament, Peter and Paul, the temple is always a metaphor for the church. Second, the two witnesses. I mean, the, the scholastic literature on the identity of these two witnesses goes everywhere, who they are. Again, Revelation says, I want the church to be my faithful witness. God says that. I think witness is a metaphor for the church. I think it's important we understand apocalyptic literature because if we inter- interpret something literally that's met- metaphorically, it can take us places we don't want to go. So let me give you this example. Next November 12th, the University of Nebraska football team is going to Ann Arbor, Michigan to play the Wolverines. If you get up on the 13th and see the headline of the Lincoln Journal Star saying, Huskers, blast Wolverines. Are you guys liking this illustration so far? You liking this? You got to know your audience. That's what they told me in seminar. You got to know your audience. Huskers, blast Wolverines. Are you going to think there was an explosion in the stadium? Are you going to think Scott Frost broke FAA regulations by taking explosive devices on the plane? Are you going to think the Huskers broke not only uh, University of Michigan ordinances, but the city of Ann Arbor about explosives? No. I hope you're not. That blast is a metaphor for what? On the offense, Nebraska, they pushed Michigan off the ball, and on defense, they crushed them. They caved them in. Well, how do you capture that? You say, blast. My point in that is, we can go crazy places if we take something literally that was written metaphorically. That being said, my conviction is these verses are written metaphorically with the temple representing the church. There was given me a measuring rod like a staff and someone said, get up and measure the temple. This is a Rooted in Ezekiel, the Old Testament prophecy, Ezekiel vision, vision of someone measuring the church. Measuring is, is a symbol of protection. God has got it under control. Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. However, verse 2, leave out the court, which is outside the temple. The temple had these outer courts. And do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations. And they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. So there's a part of that temple I want measured and I want protected. 
And I think that's symbolic of, of the church's witness, testimony of Jesus. God said, I'm going to protect that. But the outer court, it's going to be trampled. I think it's symbolic of the church being persecuted. The testimony of Jesus remains in place. But physically, the church individuals are persecuted. We have seen already in Revelation the voice of the martyrs under the altar, a testimony to God. And we've talked about who is the first reader. Seven churches are the first readers that were mentioned in chapters 1 through 3, and they are suffering. We've already talked about people who have lost their lives. God said, I'm going to protect my church, the testimony. But outwardly, these, temple, these people will be persecuted. And it's going to go on 42 months. It's a short, intense times of persecution. And it's linked with verse 3 because it talks about something that happens to 1,260 days. That's the same amount of time. Here's the second metaphor, verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. I do not believe these are two literal people coming back, but the church is called a, my faithful witness in the book of Revelation. These people are clothed in sackcloth. That means they've got a message that is somber. Verse 4, there are two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And that's taken from Zechariah chapter 4, where God says, not by strength, not by power, but by my spirit. He says, Lord, through my spirit, I'm going to do something through the church. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. This is talking about the church going forward. In a sense, the church won't be stopped. Early in Acts, the, 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 the disciples were pulled in and they, and they thought about executing them. And one of the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the leader stood up, Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5, said, I wouldn't do that. If this thing is not of God, it'll die on its own. But it's, if it is of God, you're not going to stop it, and you're going to be found fighting against God. That was 2,000 years ago, the church dominates. It is growing in Africa, in Asia, in the Middle East. There's a season in which the church will, will expand. Uh, verse 6, these have the power to shut up the sky. Obviously, a reference to the Old Testament prophet Elijah. So that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood. A reference to Moses. And to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. What is it? Bottom line that Moses and Elijah were doing. They were bringing, announcing the judgment of God on the earth. He said, the church is going to be my mouthpiece. We've got a people who's independent. I don't need God. They set up a world system that intentionally excludes God. And these God people keep talking. They keep showing up and they keep talking about Jesus. And God said, I'm going to empower that church and they're going to go forward. But there will come a time of intense persecution, of opposition. And we see that in verse 7. Especially as the church age comes to an end. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. All right, verses 12 through 14 are going to let us know what is going on on earth. It's, it's, it's far deeper. There's, there's a spiritual battle going on. And we're going to meet the beast in Revelation 13. For now, just know that he's demonic. And he comes and he kills these two witnesses. Again, symbolic of the church. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, 
where also their Lord was crucified, referring to Jerusalem. So what is the great city? I think commentator Leon Morris has it right. It's every city and it's no city. Any place humanity organizes and pushes back against God is the great city. In John's time, in which he wrote, the great city was Rome. But the identity, the location, the name of that city, it changes over time. But it's a constant. And John is saying to these seven churches, hey, there's a pattern. This isn't unique. You have humanity rebelling against God. Uh, Those, chapter 9, from the peoples and the tribes and the nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. They won't even give them the dignity of a burial. That's how great the disdain is for the church. I mean, we're seeing that right now in Ukraine. We understand there's a war going on, but we're horrified. They just leave bodies in the street. This is far more calculated. There's no war. These guys are dead, but we hate them. We loathe them so much, we'll just let them sit there, and we'll look on them. Verse 10. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate, and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Again, two witnesses, symbolic of the church, they're dead, people will celebrate. These people were tormentors. Finally, they're gone, and I'll send you a gift, and and you send me a gift, because we are celebrating. What are we celebrating? The voice of the church, finally turned off. The representation of God wiped away. Finally, now we can live. We can get the God people out of here. That's worth celebrating. So they say, what's the deal? What's the deal? Because there is a world system that is intentionally developed to exclude God. You come in representing God. You come in talking about God. You could, you're, you're not welcome here. And this persecution will grow at the end of the church age to where they will celebrate those finally people finally being shut up. And they will celebrate and celebrate until... Until... God acts. Verse 11. But after the three and a half days, again, a comparatively short time, the breath of life from God came into them. Who? The two witnesses. And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. Yeah, you bet. We've been celebrating these dead people. We've been rejoicing. We've been sending gifts. We've, woohoo, they're finally gone. And now they're alive? Whoops. Whoops. We bet on the wrong horse. And our horse was ahead, and now here it comes, and, 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 and we're going to lose a lot. And, verse 12, they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. Oh, oh, they were from God. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. This is sim- similar to language used when God took Elisha, the Old Testament prophet, to heaven. It's similar to language that was used when Jesus resurrected into heaven. You know, his brothers didn't even believe he was divine until after the resurrection. The whole time he was on earth, they kind of, this guy's whacked, got a crazy brother. But I can tell you, when they saw him back from the dead, then 40 days later, see him going to heaven, it was, oh, vindication. Maybe he was, maybe he was the son of God. God is vindicating and will vindicate the church. It's reminiscent of the language of the book of Daniel when it talks about the Son of Man being lifted up on the clouds. 
God vindicates his suffering church. The result, verse 13. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. Again, apocalyptic kind of language, symbolic of an abrupt ending. And finally, the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. They become Christians, I don't know. But finally, they were willing to recognize God. Remember, we've been through seven sealed judgments which affected a quarter of the earth, famine and pestilence and war. Then we've been through six trumpet judgments, affected a third of the earth, burned up the grass, burned up the trees, took away the drinking water, wrecked the shipping industry, and it goes on, and took, killed a third of humanity. And we said God is held back from the whole earth because he's wanting to get people's attention. Still nothing. Finally. Finally. With the vindication of the persecuted church, people go, oh, oh. We've got independent humanity recognizing God. See, we're asking this question, what's it going to take for independent humanity to worship God? Here's what I say. God working through his faithful and suffering church will bring independent humanity to worship God. God working through his Faithful and suffering church will bring independent humanity to finally recognize God. You know, at Pentecost, the, the church was birthed, the, the spirit was poured out in the disciples, and they started speaking in tongues, and the people said, oh, they're drunk, and Peter said, no, you know, it's really early in the morning, and it's, we're not drunk, the spirit of God has come upon us, and let me tell you what's going on. He started talking about Jesus, and at one point in the, his message in Acts 2, 22 and 23, Peter said, uh, by the way, according to the plan of God, you guys out there, you put Jesus on the cross. You and me and that, that crowd, his blood is on your hands, you're responsible, but there's grace, there's an opportunity to come back. Those people were cut to the quick. And it said that day, 3,000 people came to faith. People recognizing that God works through his suffering, in that case, Savior. In our case, church brings people to finally recognize God. The result, verse 14, the second woe was passed. Behold, the third woe was coming quickly. Remember, the last three trumpet judgments, numbers 5, 6, and 7, were also entitled three woes. We've, we've had two of them. Here's the third one. Then the seventh angel sounded. There's the seventh trumpet. And there was loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. There's a transition of power here. Okay? What was Satan's is now God's. And he will reign forever and ever. And this is a permanent transition. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. God's people are celebrating, finally, we have the rightful ruler. But there's another group that's not so happy. Verse 18, and the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants and prophets, and the saints and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. It'll be followed by a time of judgment. But it, this transition in power enraged some people. You know who enraged? Those who had power. Those who were worshiping Satan. 
the closest thing I can come to it is whenever we have a presidential election in which there's a change of power, a Republican's in and a Democrat wins, or a Democrat wins and there's a Republican in, there's, at, at the same time, there's euphoria. Woohoo! Finally! Finally, we'll get this country right. And there's another set of people who's enraged, and they're moving to Canada, or they're moving to Mexico, or they're moving to someplace. Why? Because they don't like the change of power. One group thinks, finally. Another thinks, oh, this is disaster. This is what we got here. The people who rejected God, uh, they're not happy. They're angry. Their candidate didn't win. God did. And so it goes. Verse 19, in the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. That's a sign uh, of, the, uh, of, of the reminder of his people. It goes back to Noah, that he will not judge. But, second part in there, were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Those are all signs of judgment. God stepping into power is that at the same time good news and bad news. It depends where you are in relation to God. Yeah, right now the, the, the world is under Satan. He's the, he's the prince of the air, but God is going to take control. Will that message excite us or will that message enrage us? You know, as I think about this, in my opinion, this is a disturbing message for the church in this country. I hear many Christians in the United States using terminology like, we're going to take back. Take back our city, we're going to take our state, we're going to take back our nation. And that's not to say we're not involved and we don't stand for righteousness and we don't stand for those who are being trampled. And, and I'm for that. But I want to tell you, when I read polls from Gallup and they ask the question, are you a Christian? And they define it this way, um, something close to this. You believe that the Bible is the word of God and the authority, and you will order your life by how you use your money and your time. I mean, when I was in college, they were talking to me about my, the way I speak, my sarcasm. They were bringing me the Bible. The, the Bible's going to order your life, okay? Do you believe Jesus is unique among any person ever born because he rose from the dead? And do you believe Jesus is, is the only means of salvation? It's about 8% in this country who would ascribe to that. Now, you Christian, you throw that term out, you don't define it. Everybody's Christian. But when you define it this way, it's about 8%. You guys, if you think we're going to take back our country with 8%, we're misguided. But that was never God's plan to move his kingdom forward, to get people to turn. He said, I'm going to use the suffering church, and I'm going to vindicate that church who suffers, and I'm going to make myself known through that's God's plan. And you know, when I, from time to time, I get together people and they say, oh, I hear you. They're not part of this church. I hear you. You're preaching through Revelation. Yeah, I am. When's Jesus coming back? The book of Revelation ain't about when Jesus is coming back. The book of Revelation ain't about when we're getting out. The book about Revelation is how God will resource us will hold us up as we suffer and how he will use his suffering, our, I'm sorry, how he will use our suffering to move his name and reputation forward. That's what we're signing up for. So I gotta ask those of you here today, knowing Jesus, where are you in facing suffering? Are you willing to do that? Now, 
in about three minutes, I'm going to introduce a friend here who he and his family minister in uh, an area, part of the world that is closed to the gospel. Those people know suffering. There's no out for them. So suffering for me and for you is a relative term. That being said, there is rejection, there's loss of job promotion, there's exclusion. You're not on the group chat anymore, you're not invited, you don't come to the party. We kind of turn the other way at the office when you come in. Maybe you don't get accepted because you won't ascri- to a graduate program because you won't ascribe to this or that. Uh, I remember um, when I first joined the staff of Campus Crusade in 1984, I told my parents and they weren't very happy about that. And so I went back and I went about my way. And so one year later, it's 1985, and we're having a party because my mom at 58 years old had completed her college degree. So we're all coming home and I came home for that and I have family on the East Coast. I flew to New Jersey and we're at that party and, and by golly, if my Aunt Jessie, who is my dad's sister, doesn't corner me in that party and say, hey Andrew, what's this that you're doing? And I just thought, I feel like I'm listening to my dad here. Obviously my dad had a talk with you and, and you have his values and you don't. And again, in the scheme of suffering, not that much, but still, it's, you can't escape it. I came to celebrate my mom's graduation, and you're telling me, talking to me about my career choice. Look, if you're going to represent Jesus, if you're going to represent God, if you're going to speak him, if you desire to reflect him, you're going to, you're going to bring people's ire. You're going to bring people's wrath. Are you willing to step in it? Because that's part of God's plan for you. Others of you here, and you're in process, you're not sure where you are with the Lord, and we want to give you space to think about it and to consider it, and I would encourage you to follow Jesus. Uh, Jesus said, I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly, and and I think fullness of life, we're always searching that, F-O-M-O, fear of missing out. Look, you don't want to miss out, I I mean, connect with Jesus. I don't mean to be simplistic. Talk about being free. Sarah Spangled Banner says we're the the land of the free, home of the brave and the land of the free. And I would argue that true freedom is found in Jesus. Yeah, there's exterior freedom that we have to a degree in this country, and I'm grateful for it. But, but inside, we're slaves to a whole bunch of things. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth, truth shall make you free. I, I would wholeheartedly endorse Jesus to you. But that being said, I, I want to be upfront with you. If you embrace Jesus and you choose to follow him, it's going to bring you into conflict with our world. You're going to be part of the suffering church. You're going to be part of the people that people want to turn off. They want to squelch. They want to quiet. That's what you're signing up for. Now, God says I'm sufficient. I'll give you the grace. I'll redeem any suffering you have. But I'd be less than honest if saying that's not a part of it. But again, God promises to redeem this suffering. So 12, 13 years ago, my mechanic said, uh, time for Andy to go new car shopping. So we, we got ourselves a little Honda Civic and um, oh, about eight years ago, our family had a wreck with that thing. And I mean, the front end is pushed in and it's dripping fluids. And I thought, it's done. We're going to scrap this. And I have a friend who's uh, in body work. And he said, no, we can, we can fix that. And I don't know. No, 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 we can. It'll cost. But it, and it, it, it'll cost less than, than the value of the car. And so, okay, we had it towed there. And... And, uh, I don't know, a month later, it's, it's like new. Uh, and that was maybe eight years ago. And our younger son's back there running sound. He's driving that car now. That's his car. And for a price, he's in the College of Business. He'll, he'll show you that car. He'll give you a tour of that car. You... <laughs> but, you know, the fact that that car is still going and is on the road 
is a testimony of the restorative powers, the, the power of this guy and, and his group of people that, that do body work. They took something that seemed lifeless and dead, and, and it's a testimony. Well, how much more with the church? We're getting beat. We're being thrashed. And God says, I, I want to work through you. And I want to draw an otherwise obstinate people to myself through my suffering church. Would we be faithful in the midst of that, that God might use us to his end and to his purposes? Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we're grateful for your word. It's true. It's challenging. And uh, we don't want to suffer. I don't. Uh, would you give us the grace in that? Would we be encouraged by this book of Revelation as we trust the first seven churches were? Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now I want to invite our friend up. Obviously, we're live streaming, so I'm not giving his name. He would be gladly give you a name when he gets back. But he's going to talk about his family's ministry in a part of the wor world that is closed to the gospel.